The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. One of the principal questions in dispute today in the Old Testament field has to do with the authorship of the prophecy of Isaiah. Um, It is almost widely accepted that the book of Isaiah today is not a unity, that it is the product of a great many writers, and it is broken up into three general parts, which they speak of as first and second and third Isaiah. By that they don't mean that there are just three writers, but that these are simply designations of sections of the book, and that... uh, the, each section really had a number of writers who com- went to compose it. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we realize that the New Testament speaks of the book as though it were the work of Isaiah the prophet, that uh, the New Testament quotes from Isaiah more than from all the other prophetical books combined. It quotes from all parts of Isaiah, and it attributes all those parts to Isaiah himself. Now there are those who say that this doesn't mean anything, that the New Testament is not speaking on the subject of authorship, but it is just using a general term. I suppose like a library tab, you find that uh, certain things are found under certain tabs or numbers in a library, and so the phrase Isaiah simply means, we are told, that This is a body of writings that has this heading, Isaiah, but it says nothing about the question of authorship. The only thing the matter with that is the manner in which the New Testament makes these quotations. If you would examine these quotations, and incidentally you will find that they are about equally divided between quotations from the first 39 chapters and quotations from chapters 40 through 66, If you were to examine these quotations, you would discover that the emphasis falls not so much upon the book Isaiah or the prophecy Isaiah, although that, of course, is mentioned, but the stress seems to fall upon the man Isaiah. And so you read phrases such as, Isaiah becomes bold and says, or well spake the Holy Ghost through Isaiah the prophet saying, (coughs) or Isaiah says again, the stress, you see, falls upon the man himself, and those are historical statements. Isaiah becomes bold and says. Now, if that statement is not true, then you may very well ask just how much of the New Testament can we trust. I want to call your attention in particular to a passage in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John where our Lord had been performing miracles before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees did not believe upon him. And the reason assigned why they did not believe upon him is that Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report, and the arm of the Lord upon whom has it been revealed. Now those words, of course, come from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, the first verse. 
And here they are deliberately attributed to Isaiah. Furthermore, the fulfillment of these words is seen to be in the unbelief of the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not believe the miracles of Christ because Isaiah had said, Lord, who hath believed our report, and the arm of the Lord upon whom has it been revealed. Now this is a very interesting thing. Isaiah said this, we are told. And this is from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. There has been a great dispute as to whether the 53rd chapter is an integral part of its context. And the school of Bernard Doom maintained that it was not an integral part of the context, that the context was written about the time of the exile, but that chapter 53 was written some hundred years later, and that chapter 53, according to Bernard Doom, belonged to an old book of songs which uh, spoke about a leprous rabbi. According to Doom, somebody took this chapter out of this book of Psalms and put it in the context in which it is found at present so that it really does not belong in that context at all. And yet John says that Isaiah said these things and that the fulfillment of these things was the unbelief of the Pharisees. So that right there you find this saying from Isaiah 53 attributed to Isaiah. Now John goes on and makes a most remarkable statement. He says, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah says again. Now he doesn't say because it's found again in the book of Isaiah, but because Isaiah says again. And now he gives the reason why the Pharisees could not believe. They could not believe because of what Isaiah further said. And now he gives a quotation from the sixth chapter of Isaiah, which contains the account of the prophet's call to his ministry. Now, so far as I know, every scholar agrees that Isaiah wrote the sixth, sixth chapter. That is given in what the Germans call the Ichstil, the I-style. It is a, an account of a, a call to a ministry, and so they attribute that to the prophet himself. The prophet, therefore, says in that sixth chapter, or uh, gives the reason why the Pharisees could not believe. You remember the words that the Lord said to the prophet there, where he commanded him to go, and uh, thou shalt say unto this people, Hear ye hearing, but perceive not, and so on. Consequently, this is applied by John to the refusal of the Pharisees to hear, and this also is attributed to Isaiah. In this one quotation, then, the prophet or John ties up both these quotations and attributes them both to Isaiah. <coughs> now, as though that were not enough, and almost in anticipation of modern scholarship, John goes on with an additional statement and said, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That is, these two quotations. These things Isaiah said. Again, it is the man Isaiah that is prominent. Isaiah said these things, and what were the conditions under which he saw, said them? He said them when he saw his glory, that is, Christ's glory, and he spake of him, of Christ. Now, it may very well be that the seeing his glory 
primarily refers to the vision in the sixth chapter. But I rather incline to think that more than that is included. It is the, the ministry of Christ upon earth and his performance of miracles. And Isaiah, when he saw Christ's glory, spake concerning him. These passages, passages then refer to Christ. Now what is rather significant here is that the whole school of form criticism ever since the time of Hermann Gunkel in Old Testament studies, has been concerned with what it calls the sits im Laban of the prophetic utterances. Now, sits im Laban means literally seat in life, and what they want to say is the life situation which called forth the individual prophetic utterances. That is what the uh, scholars are looking for today, the form critical scholars, and John tells us here that there was a situation in which Isaiah spake. And the conditions under which he spake were that he saw the glory of Christ and he spoke concerning him. Now, if you will take that passage and study it very carefully, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that John believed that the entire book of Isaiah, both the first and the second parts, were spoken by Isaiah and that they were spoken under certain very definite conditions when the prophet Isaiah spoke concerning Christ. If you will take every quotation from the book of Isaiah that is given in the New Testament, you will find the same thing, that the man Isaiah is emphasized and that the whole book apparently was regarded as the work of Isaiah. Now, this seems to be strengthened, though I think a Christian needs nothing more than the statements of the New Testament, this seems to be strengthened by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know that this discovery, which was made in 1947, uh, some think it was 1945, but uh, the generally accepted date is 47, it doesn't really matter. Some have felt that this scroll of Isaiah really throws no light on the question of authorship. I have been rather amused to find that scholars are willing to discuss everything connected with these scrolls with the exception of the light that they may throw on the authorship of Isaiah. And generally the statement has been made that it is premature, it is too early to speak about this subject, but it's not too early to speak about every other subject in connection with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now I think that the great scroll from Qumran really does say something on this question. That scroll consists of 52 columns, and these 52 columns give us the entire book of Isaiah. The first thing I suppose that anybody would want to know is just what is the arrangement between chapter 39 and 40? Is there any kind of a break there? Well, what is interesting is that chapter 39 concludes one line from the bottom of the column. There is space for perhaps five or six more letters at the end of that line. Chapter 40 begins on the last line of the column with no indentation whatever in precisely the same handwriting as that which has gone before. There is only one major break in this manuscript and that is at the conclusion of chapter 33. And I think the reason for that is that that is the physical half of the book. The Jews regarded 
one of the verses toward the close of chapter 32 or 33 as the half of the book of Isaiah. And it it is quite possible that a major break was made at this point simply to indicate the half, the physical half of the book. But there is no break whatsoever made before chapter 40, and that is very remarkable. I think now, without any question, we may say that this scroll can be dated at about 125 B.C. That is, it goes back to the second century before Christ. Bernhard Doom had made the statement and advanced the view that the book of Isaiah did not find its present form until the first century before Christ. So the very presence of this scroll shows that Doom's theories have to be abandoned. The book was in existence just as we have it today in the second century before Christ. Now, the book of Ecclesiasticus, that is the apocryphal book, also quotes from the prophecy of Isaiah, and it quotes as though Isaiah were the author. It quotes chapter 40, for example, and definitely attributes that to Isaiah. And it speaks in very lavish terms concerning the prophet Isaiah. It uses language which in the 11th chapter of the prophecy is ascribed to the Messiah himself. Ecclesiasticus, however, ascribes this language to Isaiah. So the tradition of Isianic authorship is extremely well-founded. It goes back to the second century before Christ at the latest, and of course the book itself has the heading, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw, and no other name has ever been attached to the book in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. (coughs) No other name has ever been attached to any part of the book. The only name that has ever been given to this book is the name of Isaiah. Now that brings in a few questions. How did this tradition arise? And what is the view of modern scholarship? May I go into just a bit of history of criticism here that you may understand what it is men are saying today about this prophecy. As far as I know, Ibn Ezra, who was a Jewish uh, scholar of the Middle Ages, hinted that chapters 40 through 66 might not come from Isaiah. Now, Ibn Ezra was a rationalist, and he was the kind of rationalist who liked to make it appear that he was orthodox and could get by with as much as he could. When, for example, another rabbi, Nachmanides, had questioned the authorship of the king list or the duke list in Genesis, uh, Ibn Ezra, Ezra very boldly came out and said that molten lead should be poured down his throat. That's one way of defending orthodoxy. I think there are better ways, however. (coughs) So even Ezra was the kind of man who would like to suggest that there was something questionable about a biblical text, but he never seems to have had the nerve to come right out. For example, with Genesis 12, 6, where we read the Canaanite was then in the land, Ibn Ezra uh, evidently didn't believe that that was the work of Moses, and he said that the verse had a secret, but the prudent man would keep quiet. So Ibn Ezra's suggestion that maybe chapters 40 through 66 came from some other hand than Isaiah doesn't really mean very much. 
that statement was not the result of very profound thought. I'm pretty convinced of that. One other man, Moses Ibn Gekatelia, and I hope nobody will ask me to spell that, uh, this man also suggested that chapters 40 through 66 might be from someone other than Isaiah. Now, apart from that, I do not know of any instance in the history of the Jews or in the history of the Christian church when anybody denied or even questioned any part of the authorship of Isaiah. It was not until some 27 years after the appearance of Astrup's book, what would that be, about 1780, something like that, that uh, in a German translation of Bishop Lauth's commentary on Isaiah, a commentary that holds to the Isaac Anish authorship of the whole book, the German editor, a man by the name of Kappa, suggested in a footnote to chapter 50 that that chapter might have been written by Ezekiel or by somebody who lived during the exile. Seven years after that, a German scholar named Derderlein suggested, and I think this is the first serious suggestion, that chapters 40 through 66 were not the work of Isaiah. Now, we have finally been able to procure that commentary of Derderlein for our library, our seminary library, and I want to say that it is a very meager commentary indeed. There is no well-reasoned defense of this position, but at any rate, Derderlein started the ball rolling, and it began to roll, and right away men began to say that 40 through 66 were not the work of Isaiah, and then the question arose, if he didn't write it, who did write it? Some said that one man living in the exile wrote these chapters. Others said, no, they are the work of a great many men. Because these chapters do not seem to present a developed argument, so it was maintained they must be the work of a great many men. Now, at the, toward the beginning of the last century, the great German philologist Gesenius wrote a strong defense of the unity of these latter chapters. He did not ascribe the authorship to Isaiah, but he said that they were the work of one man who lived in the exile. And this author became known as the great unknown of the exile, or to use the German phrase, the Deutero Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah. Deutero, by the way, just comes from the Greek, and if you say Deutero Isaiah rather than second Isaiah, you sound a lot more learned. So we're always being told about Deutero Isaiah. Well, someone came up with the suggestion that Possibly this man was another man by the name of Isaiah, which was not a very helpful suggestion. Uh, after Gesenius had written, then the view gained ground that the chapters 40 through 66 were the work of an unknown writer of the Babylonian exile, and that chapters 1 through 39 were for the most part the work of Isaiah. Now, that, I think, is the view that was predominant during the last century. Side by side with that, there were those who held that the entire book was the work of Isaiah, and during this period, some of the greatest commentaries on Isaiah were written. In fact, I would say some of the greatest commentaries on any biblical book. Uh, Maurice Drexler, for example, who I think has written the greatest commentary on Isaiah, Joseph Addison Alexander of Princeton Theological Seminary, Franz Dalich and Carl uh, Paul Kaspari wrote on the prophecy, and there were others who wrote very fine commentaries defending the unity of the entire book. 
Now, why would anybody deny these chapters to Isaiah? Why could not Isaiah himself have written chapters 40 through 66? Well, a number of arguments were presented for that. It is maintained, first of all, that the name of Isaiah doesn't occur in these chapters, and that is true, but neither does the name of anybody else occur in these chapters as the author. So that is not a very weighty argument. Then it is maintained that the background of these chapters is the background of the Babylonian exile, that Isaiah could not have written uh, the chapters because he would have known nothing about the Babylonian captivity, and then it is also maintained, maintained that the style of writing in these chapters differs from that which you have in the earlier chapters. Now, as soon as this argument gained ground, it became apparent that if you were going to hold the Babylonian background as a reason why Isaiah could not have written these chapters, then he could not have written a great deal else. If you look at chapter 13, it was Rosenmuller who first brought this out, I believe, if you look at thir chapter 13, it has a heading entitled The Burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Well, that chapter is Babylonian, and so is chapter 14. So if Isaiah could not have written chapters 40 through 66, neither could he have written chapters 13 and 14. And then once this process started in, they turned to chapters 24 through 27, which critics tell us is an apocalypse, and maintain that the ideas expressed in those chapters were too advanced for Isaiah's day, therefore Isaiah could not have written those chapters. Now this is the way the thing goes, and this is the way it went. Uh, the second Isaiah was being proclaimed as the greatest of all the prophets. Uh, George Adam Smith wrote his commentary on Isaiah, and he summarized, as it were, the consensus of opinion. He wrote in glowing terms concerning the work of the second Isaiah, as did a great many others. The scheme seemed to have been that Isaiah himself was an ordinary prophet, by no means one of the greatest, on a par maybe with Amos and Hosea, but not one of the greatest, but the author of the latter chapters, 40 through 66, <coughs> pardon me, was the greatest prophet that Israel had ever seen. Now, why was he so great? Well, he was great because he was the first man in the world's history that ever clearly enunciated the doctrine of monotheism. In opposition to the idols of Babylon, he came out strongly to say that there was only one God. No one had ever done this before him, we were told. And so the critics could not praise Second Isaiah highly enough. He was the pinnacle, you might say, of religious evolution, the greatest of all the prophets. And that went on until 1892 when something happened to spoil the whole thing, and that is that Bernard Doom wrote his commentary. Now, I've seen Bernard Doom recently referred to as a conservative theologian, but that doesn't mean very much because the way people judge today, everybody who manages to stay out of jail is a conservative theologian. <laughs> <coughs> Doom said that second Isaiah had never been in Babylon. Now that just took the props right out from the whole second Isaiah theory. He had never been in Babylon. Rather than that, he had written in Palestine and in all probability somewhere in the Lebanon, in Phoenicia. 
Well, now to say that that was startling is to put it very mildly. Then Doom went a step further and said that uh, Second Isaiah's writings did not comprise all of chapter 40 through 66, but only went from chapter 40 through 55. That's all. That's all of Second Isaiah. Then he went on to say that there were four passages in those chapters, the four servant songs, he called them, leaders, songs, and these were inserted into the context later. They came from an old book of songs written about a hundred years after the time of Second Isaiah. They had to do with a leprous rabbi who had died, who he was nobody knows, and later on, some redactor took them out of this book of songs and put them in their present context in Second Isaiah. So there, once and for all, Doom destroyed this idea of vicarious suffering that uh, was supposed to be one of the great contributions of Second Isaiah. Well, what about chapters 56 through 66? Those chapters, said Doom, are the work of a man who lived also in Palestine after the temple had been rebuilt and the first signs of Judaism were on the scene. And this writer, Doom said, was Trito Uzziah, third Isaiah. Well, now that book appeared like a bombshell. Doom had been hinting at it in earlier writings, but his commentary came out in 1892. And since the time of doom, I don't want to trace the history of criticism much further, <coughs> since the time of doom, almost everybody has accepted this three Isaiah theory. But as I said earlier, this doesn't mean there were three authors. It did mean that with doom, or almost that. And it meant it with some others. Eliger, for example, has written on third Isaiah, even discussing his personality with a complete lack of sense of humor, it seems to me, and uh, showing that there was a third Isaiah and a second Isaiah as well as a first Isaiah. But I think that what is held today, as far as men do any original investigating of the subject at all, is something like this that the book of Isaiah is really a little library of prophetical literature. That Isaiah did write certain things in the first part of his book, but that a great deal of it has to be denied to Isaiah and was inserted later on either by disciples of Isaiah or else by redactors or glossators who came along later on. Then the second batch, chapters 40 through 55, circles about the work of one author who wrote in the same style as Isaiah and even imitated him, and he had disciples who added glosses there, and then much later on the third Isaiah section was added very much in the same way. It consists of a lot of fragments. I think that is a fair statement of the consensus of opinion, if there is such a consensus. A book on second Isaiah has recently appeared following very closely the views of doom on the authorship of this section, and it deals only with chapters 40 through 55. Another book, however, entitled History and Prophecy in Second Isaiah by Professor Smart of Union Seminary shows, in my opinion, more originality, and what he means by Second Isaiah is all of 40 through 66, and he includes also chapter 35. He holds to the unity 
of this entire section, and he makes out a rather good convincing case for that unity. So there are some signs that this three Isaiah theory is beginning to go, and uh, men simply do not know where to turn. They are not going to hold that Isaiah was the author of the entire prophecy, because in order to do that really involves belief in predictive prophecy. And I cannot help but feel that because Isaiah has more messianic prophecies than any of the other books, that that is one reason why the attack has been so strong against it. Now, can we believe that Isaiah was the author of the entire prophecy, or must we go along with some two or three Isaiah theories such as, as has been suggested? I would like to point out that there are certain difficulties involved in this second and third Isaiah theory. You see, the Dead Sea Scroll is a complete copy of Isaiah, and it goes back to the second century before Christ. Now, if Isaiah himself was not one of the great prophets, and if second Isaiah was the greatest of all the prophets, and people still talk that way, if that is so, how did these books happen to be joined together, and how did the name of Isaiah come to be attached to them, and the name of second Isaiah be completely lost, so that we don't even know who he was? We don't know a thing about second Isaiah. All we have is guesswork. How then did the book come to find its present form? Now, there has never been given a satisfactory answer to that question. And I don't know whether it's worthwhile considering any of the answers that have been attempted or not. But that is a problem that faces everyone. How did the book come to have this form? How did the name Isaiah come to be attached to it? And how did the name of second Isaiah come completely to be lost? So that the New Testament quotes from all parts of Isaiah, attributing everything to Isaiah. Now, as Christians, we believe that settles the issue, that when the New Testament speaks on a subject, there is nothing more to be said. That is as final. When the New Testament says, Isaiah became bold and said, that is as true a statement as when the New Testament says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And if the one is not true, how do you know that the other is true? So the real question you see in all of this is the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Can we believe what the New Testament says? Now, let's go back and look more closely at this subject. There are good reasons for believing in the authorship, the Isianic authorship of the prophecy. For one thing, a number of passages in Isaiah 34 and in the latter books are developed and enlarged upon in Jeremiah and in Zephaniah and in Nahum. Now, the only way you can escape the force of that argument is to say that Jeremiah must have written first and that the Isianic passages must be put way late after the time of Jeremiah. There is a strong reason why that cannot be the case. In almost every instance, when you compare the two, and I've done this in the Westminster Theological Journal, the development clearly is seen in Jeremiah or the other prophecies and not in Isaiah. It is clear that Jeremiah 
has based his remarks upon Isaiah. Now, Jeremiah, more than any of the prophets, refers to earlier prophets in the biblical history. He refers to Micah by name. He refers to men who have gone before his time. He uses earlier material. And Jeremiah's ministry (coughs) is a carrying out in his own life and person of the principles that were enunciated by Isaiah. So you do have these Isaiahic passages from the latter part of the prophecy that are used in Jeremiah and used in some of the other prophets. That, it seems to me, would rule out the idea that you can have a second Isaiah. Now, Franz Dalich, a German scholar, a man of very independent mind, a man who jumped backwards and forwards with regard to a number of questions, who never seemed to be completely settled on a number of things, and who finally said that he would die without being sure about the question of the authorship of the book, he seemed unable to make a positive decision. The critics maintained that he actually denied the Isianic authorship. I don't think that really is the case. He simply seemed to hold his judgment in abeyance. Uh, Dalich, a man who wavered on a number of things, such as the question of the identity of the servant of the Lord, Dalich made a rather thorough investigation of this particular subject, and uh, you will find it in an appendix to Drexler's commentary. The only trouble with it is it's written in German, and I don't think it's ever been translated. Dalich goes through this whole business comparing these passages in great detail, weighing the possibility, and then comes to the conclusion that the dependence is not found in Isaiah, but found in the other prophets. And if you work through that material of Dalich's, very few people seem to have done it, you'll realize he has a mighty strong argument there. As far as I know, this is completely ignored by the critics. The only answer that was given to my article by a German critic was, if you have presuppositions, you get easy answers. Well, that's all right. Everybody's got presuppositions. And they have presuppositions too, and they always come up with answers that are in agreement with their presuppositions. What I would like them to do is to face up to this question of presuppositions and let us see what is the basis upon which we are working. I think we have to do that, and I think that's the way our Christian apologetic has got to proceed. Surely we have presuppositions. And once we have these presuppositions, we don't have to be ashamed of them. The thing is to have the right presuppositions. And if your presupposition for human thought is God, the God of the Bible, and the fact that he has spoken to man, then you don't have to worry at all. If your presupposition is that the Bible is only the work of man, and that uh, it is not the word of God in any special sense, why then you can treat the Bible like any other book, and you can subject it to your own theories as much as you want. All I'm saying now is I don't object to somebody saying I have presuppositions. I do have, but I know I have. And I just wish some of those who attack the Christian faith would realize that they have presuppositions just as well, and they're arguing upon the basis of their presuppositions, if only they would realize that they are doing that. But this is a very cogent argument, and I would urge you to study it. If you will take the book of Jeremiah in your English Bible, and take the marginal references, and then just look up every one of those marginal references about 
references to Isaiah and compare the two, I think you'll find it's a very stimulating and worthwhile study. Well, now, we come then to this prophecy of Isaiah, and I want to bring out this particular point before I develop the argument of the prophecy. It has long been pointed out that there is a certain diversity of style in the second part. That is, to be specific, in chapters 40 through 48, you do have a particular style. The style differs again somewhat in chapters 55 to the end. Now, my friends, our style of writing differs depending upon the subject with which we are dealing. But also, if Isaiah uttered orally the prophecies found in the first part of his book, they would very definitely have a certain style. This is very fresh in my mind because I've just seen something, a copy of what I've said here. And believe me, the oral style is quite different from the written style. I'm very grateful to the people that are going to edit this and put it in at least reasonable English. What you say is quite different from what you write down laboriously. And if Isaiah had uttered these prophecies orally, that explains for some of the, some of the vigor and the freshness and the succinctness of them. But now there is good reason to believe <coughs> that the latter chapters were uttered after he had retired from active ministry and in the spirit of prophecy had looked forward to the fortunes of God's people, a theme that I want to develop more this afternoon, and that he had composed these prophecies in writing. Now, not only is his subject matter different, not only is the situation under which the chapters were composed different, but there's another factor that we need to take into consideration. If he did do this after his retirement from active ministry, which would have had to be after 701 B.C., and he began at least as early as 739 B.C., then he was a far older man and far more mature, and the writing that he composed as an older man would necessarily have a slightly different style from the writing that he had used as a younger man. If we continue, our writing should and does improve. We change as we grow older, and our style would improve. We don't write today the way we did when we were in our teens, at least I hope we don't. We learn a little something as time goes on, and that could very well be one reason why there is a difference in style. But this idea of a difference in style has been overdone. And even Rudolf Kittel, who could hardly be uh, regarded as a defender of the Isianic authorship, believed that the second Isaiah, as he called him, imitated or followed the style of the first Isaiah. Now, it has long been known that there are certain phrases in Isaiah which occur in this prophecy and nowhere else in the Old Testament. One phrase that seems to bind together the entire prophecy is that phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah saw the Holy One in the temple and was so impressed with the holiness of God that he always referred to him as the Kedosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And that phrase occurs about an equal number of times, both in 1 through 39 and in 40 through 66. 
Now there are, outside of that, it occurs in some of the Jeremiahic passages that are based upon Isaiah. But the greater number of occurrences are in the prophecy of Isaiah. But there are phrases and combinations of phrases that occur in both parts of Isaiah and nowhere else in the Old Testament. Not just one or two of them, but many of them. Streams in the desert, for example. Caprice, the word to alulim for caprice, occurs only in both parts of Isaiah and nowhere else. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The very word Seth, comfort ye my people, Seth your God, ordinarily in Hebrew is pronounced Yomer. In Isaiah, throughout the whole prophecy, it is spelled Yomar with an A. That is characteristic of this prophecy. Some time ago, a Jewish lady sent me a book that she had written called The Indivisible Isaiah. It was a translation from the Hebrew. And this lady had spent years in showing that certain combinations of verbs and nouns and so on, and the occurrences of certain verbs in a, with a certain connotation and the occurrences of certain nouns were characteristic of both parts of Isaiah, but found nowhere else in the Old Testament. And I would simply suggest for anybody that has any question on this to get that book and take the time and look all these up. Now, if you can do it with the Hebrew, so much the better. You can't really get very far with the English. But all you have to do is go through this and you realize how much nonsense has been uttered on the question of the style of Isaiah. It is simply impossible that more than one man composed that book unless you maintain that somebody deliberately devoted his entire life to composing a slavish imitation of the first part of the book. Then you might possibly have an explanation for the use of these particular combinations of words in the second part as well as in the first. The only trouble with that is it is as clear as can be that the second part of Isaiah is not an imitation of anything. There is originality there of the most beautiful kind. So that doesn't really help us. The facts are that there is an almost unique vocabulary that appears in this prophecy and nowhere else in the Old Testament. But I think one of the strongest arguments for the unity of the book is to be found in the message of the book. And I want to ask your indulgence for just a few moments as we look at the message of the prophecy. I realize there are difficulties, surely. But just consider the message of the prophecy. In the first chapter, the prophet sets forth in germ form the themes that he is later going to develop. If you examine that first chapter, you will find that it falls into four different divisions. And each of these divisions is introduced by appealing to the Lord as speaking. For example, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord speaketh. And then again, the second section is introduced. Hear the word of the Lord, ye princes of Sodom. Give ear unto the <coughs> word of our God, ye princes, of, ye people of Gomorrah. Then the third section of that first chapter begins, Come and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And the fourth section, beginning in verse 24, thus saith the Lord. And then Isaiah heaps up a number of epithets that characterize the Lord. And in that first chapter, you find in germ form all of the themes that the prophet wants to develop later on.
That's a remarkable chapter. I remember that when I was a student in seminary that there appeared an account in the evening paper one day about the death of a German scholar who had devoted his entire life to this first chapter of Isaiah. I don't remember his name. But the editor of the paper more or less took him to task and thought that there were other chapters in the Bible as well and that it was implied that he'd been wasting his time spending so much time on this one chapter. I don't remember who the man was, but I must confess I have a great deal of sympathy with him because the more I work with this chapter, the more wonderful it seems to me, the deeper it is. And once you become enamored with this chapter, it's rather hard to let go of it. But here the prophet gives us in germ form all that he is going to say later on. Now, the prophet's ministry occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. That doesn't necessarily mean after the death of Uzziah that the vision came, but in that year, so that he did prophesy during the reign of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Chapters 2 through 4 may have been uttered during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham. Now, if you look at these, you see that they constitute a little unit. Chapter 2 begins right away with a picture of universal peace. And that is the basic theme of Isaiah's prophecy, the peace that God gives to his people. There he tells us that the mount of the house of the Lord will be established at the top of the hills. People will go to learn of the Lord, and the result will be that the nations will no longer learn war. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Then after that he turns to his people and points out their sinful condition and then introduces his second major theme, that of judgment. He says that there is a day that belongs to the Lord of hosts and when this day comes it is going to spread over everything that in the eyes of man is high and lifted up. And he closes that second chapter with the remarkable appeal, See she from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted? In the third chapter, he shows that because of the sinfulness of the people, a proximate judgment is coming. And he mentions some of these sins, and in particular the finery of the women who were, you might say, at ease in Zion and had no concern about the work of the Lord. Then going on into chapter 4, he gives us again a picture of peace, but now he advances a step and connects this peace with an individual, the sprout of the Lord, the first messianic reference in the prophecy. Now in chapter 5, he takes up the same theme. Beginning with a beautiful parable, he shows that God has done everything for the nation Israel, but Israel has rebelled. And then he lists many of the sins of Judah and Israel and closes this fifth chapter by introducing again the second theme of judgment, but now again he becomes specific and goes a step further and connects this judgment with the coming of an army, that is the Assyrian army. Thus he has set before us his basic themes. Now we may be introduced to the man himself, Isaiah, and we are given his vision in the temple. Now this chapter not only introduces us to the man and to his message, but it prepares the way for the messianic prophecies to be found in the subsequent chapters. Isaiah is told that he is to go out and preach the people callous, and that starts in right away with Ahaz. He preaches to this king, and this king refuses to listen to him. Ahaz would call in the Assyrian for his help. In opposition to that, Isaiah, as we saw yesterday, sets forth the birth of the Messianic king. Then again, the prophecies interchange with references to the Messiah 
and to the presence of the Assyrians. The land is Emmanuel's land, but the land is overspread <coughs> with a bird of prey, the Assyrian power. Then, after having depicted that Assyrian power, he states the birth of the Messiah again in clearer terms and says more about him, and then goes on to show how the Assyrian will come to Jerusalem. He uh, seems to interchange the subjects of the Messiah and judgment, or in other words, of peace and judgment. Then he concludes with that wonderful prophecy of chapter 11 about the reign of the Messiah, and this whole messianic section is brought to a conclusion with a paean of praise, a song of praise in chapter 12. <coughs> now, that has been fundamental because the Assyrian would establish a worldwide empire that would engulf the kingdom of God. Therefore, Isaiah goes to the heart of the matter and in chapters 13 and 14 shows that the Babylonian king, who is at the heart of enmity against God's people, is to be destroyed. Now, don't let anybody say that Isaiah couldn't have written chapter 13. There are more characteristic Isaiahic phrases in that chapter than in almost any other chapter in the whole prophecy. And if anybody thinks Isaiah couldn't have known anything about Babylon, in 1952 there was discovered an inscription of Sargon II, which dates from 710 B.C., just about the time that Isaiah was writing this, which describes a downfall of Babylon in language almost similar to that of chapter 13. So don't let anybody tell you that Isaiah couldn't have written these words. And uh, then after 13 and 14, the prophet goes on to show that the Assyrian will conquer other nations, that they will feel the coming of Assyria. Moab, he mentions, and he wails for Moab because it is perishing. Damascus and others. Then a number of the smaller kingdoms like Duma, Edom, and so on, Arabia. And then he appeals to the sea power, Tyre, and brings this whole section to a conclusion in chapters 24 through 27 in which he rises above and takes from what he has discussed tying it up into one and brings forth the two themes of judgment and of peace. And in this are some of the most beautiful prophecies of peace and blessing as well as the announcements of judgment and Moab is singled out as an example of a nation that is to feel the judgment. Now again, the critics say that this is too advanced for Isaiah. But again, every verse in these chapters has Isaianic expressions in it. What are you going to do with that? Well, one uh, scholar said that evidently these chapters were written by somebody who wanted to make it appear that he was Isaiah. And if that's the case, it seems to me, why not just say Isaiah himself wrote it? What do we mean that these ideas are too advanced for him? Do we mean that the Spirit of God could not reveal these ideas to him? Or do we mean that in an evolutionary scale of human development it was too early for these ideas to appear? That's what the critics mean. But if you see how beautifully these chapters fit into the prophecy as summing up what has gone before, the prophecies under the reign of Ahaz, why, you can very easily see that they could come from Isaiah. Now we come to the time of Hezekiah. The alliance with Assyria had been made. Things aren't working out well. People want to go to Egypt for help. And so Isaiah has to point out the folly of doing that. He warns against that policy and again concludes this section with 34 and 35, which is similar to 24 through 27, in that it introduces judgment and peace. And this time 
Edom is singled out for judgment, just as Moab was in the earlier section. Now he rises constantly as though on a staircase, going beyond the Assyrian period to the time of Babylonian captivity. Then you have four chapters, a connecting bridge, 36 through 39, 36 and 37 point back to the Assyrian period, 38 and 39 point forward to the Babylonian period. And there is an express prophecy in 39 that the people will go captive to Babylon. 39 closes on that sad note. And that sets the background for the word of comfort given in chapter 40. In other words, if you have 1 through 39 alone, they work up to something and stop. And there is really no key to their understanding. If you take chapters 40 through 66 alone and divorce them from what precedes, what is the purpose of them? Comfort ye my people. Why? What has happened? But see how beautifully this takes up the thought of 39. The prophecy of captivity. Now comfort the people because there is to be deliverance. And as I want to try to point out this afternoon, we have to stop right now. These latter chapters take up this thought of comfort. They do have a Babylonian background. And Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus will be used of God to deliver the people. <coughs> now, the prophecy of Cyrus found in chapter 44 is written as though Cyrus would appear upon the scene in the far distant future. He is not set forth as a contemporary, as the critical view would demand. But what Isaiah is really talking about is that the people are in a spiritual bondage and the only one who can deliver from that bondage is the servant of the Lord. The first section of Isaiah speaks of the person of the Messiah. The second section speaks of the work of the Messiah. And then the prophecy concludes by showing that in Israel itself there is a division, that not all are Israel who bear that name, but only the elect, the righteous, will be saved and the wicked will perish. That is the theme of these chapters. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. They divide into three divisions. I'm going to try to point that out this afternoon. You see, therefore, that there is a unity to the book of Isaiah. All too often critics give me the impression that they pick out a verse here and there and discuss it in isolation from the whole context. But if you consider the whole context, you realize that here is the work of one mind that this is a messianic book and that it could only have been the work of one man. And that man is Isaiah, the son of Amos. Thank you all.